0: on the google play or app store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today welcome to the wired to hunt podcast home of the modern whitetail hunter and now your host mark kenyon
1: Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson. Today, I'm joined by Bree Lewis to discuss Florida whitetail hunting, traditional archery, and developing an adventurous hunting mindset. All right, folks, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. You might notice that this is not the voice of Mark Kenyon. He's off at a Miley Cyrus concert in Memphis with Spencer Newharth, where, at least according to his latest text to me, Spencer paid up for the meet and greet. So that's a nice little treat for the boys. Today, my guest is Bree Lewis who is a big game hunting guide in New Zealand, as well as an outdoor writer. Bree grew up bow hunting Florida whitetails with her father, Tim, who is the author of several great bow hunting books and a real student of nature. While Bree started off hunting with compounds, mostly from stands and blinds, she quickly developed a love for traditional archery and still hunting, which is a craft she honed in the swamps of Florida, but now uses in New Zealand, which surprisingly has two huntable populations of whitetails, There's a crazy story behind that, which Brie shares with me in addition to a lot of really interesting conversation. I had an absolute blast talking to her and I think you're going to love the show, but I got to give you a heads up that I actually recorded this with Brie way back in July. Mark and I got our signals crossed on this one and we didn't really have a place for the show then, but we do now. So keep in mind, if it seems like our seasonal timing is off a little, it's because we had this conversation. It was in the middle of the summer. Other than that, I think you're really going to love this episode. Bree Lewis, I am so excited to talk to you today.
2: Well, I'm excited to talk to you too, Tony.
1: You are uh living a lifestyle that is pretty wild and we were just we were just talking off air about how how I show I show my little girls, my little 9-year-old girls your little social media posts and stuff all the time cuz I'm like, look at what this girl is doing. And I really want to get into kind of how your life has, you know, hunting has been such a central theme of it and you've really taken off with it. Like you, you, you've said, I'm going to go do crazy wild things with hunting and it's, it's so cool. I want to talk to you about that, but let's talk about growing up in Florida as a, the daughter of a crazy traditional bow hunter <laughs> who I love. Uh, what what was it like? Was it always hunting for you even growing up as a little girl down there in Florida?
2: Yeah, my dad's just started taking me into the woods, whether it was for hunting or catching snakes or, you know, looking at birds, just appreciating Florida nature and being outdoors. And I started hunting pretty young. Um, My dad will remember the exact age, but I wanted a gun and he made me wait till I think I was six um, in order to start hunting. And there's there's no, I know some of the states have laws about the age that you can get into firearms and hunting, but I shot my first pig that year, um, and yeah, when you were six, off. yeah.
1: What what were you using for a gun?
2: It was a twenty-two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was it a piglet? No, no. Uh, I can't remember how big, but uh, it was a boar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was it was decent. Um, there's a bit of a story. I don't know if this is okay to say. Anyway, yeah, it was a pretty. Independent sort of experience, actually. So that was cool. Are you gonna um, just leave
1: it hanging at that?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um,
1: you were an independent six-year-old with a twenty-two, and you were hunting pigs, and well, you got one.
2: No, I, I was with my I was with my dad. There was just some piglets that came by, and I wanted one as a pet. And um, anyway, yep. That's
1: so you. You were hunting pigs, trying to kill a pig, but also maybe eyeballing some little porkers running through there as potentially to grab and, and take home to raise
2: for my dad to grab for me. Yeah. And, um, did he grab one? Yes, I think so. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah.
1: All right. Well, I can tell that I'm going to have to just pull this out of you. So what happens to this pig that, that Tim catches?
2: Well, I think I'm not really sure because, uh, he left me and I asked if a boar came by, if I could chewed it and, um, then I shot it and I think he came running back. So, um, yeah. That so you set of, your dad off sure on a pet pig okay.
1: catching mission might, while you're still hunting there. Uh, this is this, I love this. How old are you, by the way? This,
2: I'm 26. This might be something we need to edit out. because I'm not sure.
1: <laughs> we are absolutely going. leaving this in. So you, you did something, it, this, this, it's a wild story, but it, it's going to, you're, you're going to tell us some other stuff here soon, I'm sure about your, you're being raised down there and the way you were raised that has led to your life decisions. And that's one of those things that I, I love hearing because, you know, as the father of twin nine-year-olds, I'm always looking like, where are these moments where I can let them have some independence and make some yeah. decisions with consequences because they're going to hunt, like, it, you know, it, yeah. whether they take to it or not, they're going to get their chances. And you know, I think it's up to the parent to decide is, is six too young or is eight too young or is nine too young? Where's my kid at? Obviously your dad trusted you there.
2: Yeah. I think it it depends a lot on the individual. Like I was probably mature and I think girls mature a bit understanding consequences, probably a bit earlier than boys in some cases, but it's all on the individual. And I'd hunted with my dad. That wasn't my first opportunity to add a pig. Um, This is all like him telling me the story later. I don't really remember things from back then, but um, there were chances, I guess, where there are pigs that I could have shot, but there are cows behind them. And I was so worried that I might accidentally wound a cow that if it was in that direction, I wouldn't shoot the pig. So There were opportunities where he saw me make decisions that were smart and we talked about them. So I think he felt pretty comfortable by that stage.
1: Was it, was this kind of hunting scenario? This, this wasn't probably out of a ground blind 20 years ago then, was it? I mean, you were probably in like, were you tucked into the palmettos or something?
2: Do you know? I can't honestly remember. (laughs) So you don't remember (laughs) if
1: there was a, like an actual ground blind there or not?
2: I don't know. We weren't in a blind.
1: Okay. you're sitting on the ground actual,
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, that's yeah. probably what it was.
1: When did, when did he get you into shooting traditional bows? Uh,
2: before that, um, I'll send you a photo, uh, of it. I would probably have been three or four and I'm wearing a little tiara and I have my first traditional bow. And I remember I took it in to kindergarten to show and tell, and I broke it because I tried to string it myself in front of the class. It was pretty heartbreaking. But, um, yeah, so that was my first traditional bow, and then I just had heaps of other ones, and uh, I got into shooting fish, so that was the first thing. Uh, I grew up on a canal that you saw, and mullet would come by, and I'd shoot them off the dock with wood arrows, so they'd float once the fish died up, and then I'd go swim out and retrieve them. So, Yeah. <laughs>
1: uh i I love that it, and it, this comes your your dad is is Tim Lewis and he's he's a bow hunting writer he's a bow hunting author he's a he's a hardcore traditional bow hunter in yeah. a and a real student of nature uh he's he's such a cool guy uh he he, he was he always traditional archery did he yeah. did he ever hunt with compounds that you remember
2: he yes so my mom and I she she bought it I was pretty young. Um, we got him a compound bow after he had an injury and he thought that that was the way to go was to try to shoot, hunt with a compound bow, but I don't even think he made it a whole season with it. And he went back to traditional archery. So
1: he's, he's into it. And, and you just took to that. Have you, have you ever hunted with a compound or has it always been traditional for you?
2: Yeah. So I wasn't strong enough to pull back a traditional bow. I started bow hunting, I think when I was 12 for deer. And so he got me a compound bow and, yep, away from there. And I stuck with it all through. I wanted to go to traditional bow, but I didn't put the time into practicing. So I just, you know, season would come up and I'd want to go hunting. And I just stuck with the compound as a bit of a crutch. So I just started going into the traditional bow now that I've been over in New Zealand and games like readily available. There's no seasons or anything, no tags. So it's a great opportunity.
1: So you didn't, you, when you were growing up, bow hunting those swamp whitetails down there, you were always hunting them with a the compound?
2: Well, no. Okay. So when I was at school, um, at UF, I started getting into the mounted archery. So that motivated me to practice more with the traditional style bow. And that's when I started. So I did shoot one whitetail in Florida with a trad bow, which was pretty cool.
1: Nice. But when you when yeah. you start so you said you started when you were twelve, whitetail hunting down there. Yes. How long did it take you to kill your first deer?
2: I was in eighth grade, so it would have been probably two seasons without shooting anything, and I never went to a gun. Like even the last week in a season, I stuck with my bow. So were you- I just loved it.
1: Were you hunting, I I, cause I don't, your dad doesn't hunt over feeders, does he? No. Yeah. So he's, no. he's hunting natural brows and natural, natural food, natural movement down there. Yeah. It, and I'm assuming you were too.
2: Yep. Yeah. yeah. So just falling in my dad's footsteps kind of. And, um, I really liked early season hunting because, uh, the deer are feeding on the acorns from the scrub oaks and they're out in really good country for bush stalking. Um, which that's my New Zealand term for still hunting. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, they call it bush stalking here, but pretty much um, just walking through those scrub oak areas. And it's really quiet because we have that white sugar sand. So it's quiet. There's palm frond clumps in these little scattered groups of scrub oaks. Um, and it's actually a good chance to stalk a deer, which is a really hard feat with, a bow, so...
1: Is is that uh, how you killed your first one?
2: No. My first year was in the winter, and that was from a stand in a swamp. So it was like completely water under where I shot her. Um, yeah. But... Go ahead. Uh, the other thing is we're hunting on private land. We have 14 members on the hunting club, and most of them are rifle hunters. So archery season was kind of our free range. We could walk around, and we didn't worry about messing up other hunters. Versus during the rifle season, we stuck to one area a bit more because we didn't want to mess up other rifle hunters.
1: Was that part of the reason why you like the early season as well?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and probably just for a young person, sometimes it's hard to sit still for a while. Like, um, I used to only be able to hunt till nine or something in the morning. Cause then I'd be ready to go do something active. But, um, of course, as I got older, I, it was so exciting just being in a spot where I felt like there was a potential. I was quite happy to stay all day if I felt like it was good. So
1: when, when did you kill your, your first one still hunting down there?
2: I don't know because after I killed my first year, I had a bit of a good run um with does. So our club had restrictions for bucks. They had to be, I think it was a hundred. Oh, I'm I'm thinking of score, but it would have been I think 15 inch main beams and 15 inch spread and four points on one side. Um And then it changed and they had to be also over four and a half years old. So we had a lot of restrictions on the type of bucks that we could take. And I was always, I guess, wanting to err on the side of caution. So there were some bucks that I took photos of and showed my dad later. And he was like, oh, I would have shot that. And I was like, "Eh, well,
1: what, what, so this is, this is a world that, Probably a lot of people, a lot of the white tail hunters listening to this probably have never experienced a hunting club. And, you know, that, those kind of restrictions, they're very common in those kind of places or those kind of leases yeah. and situations. Yeah. And, but, but a lot of people outside of the South don't deal with that. I mean, when you were, you know, you grew up with that. So you probably, that was just what you dealt with. But yeah. as like a young bow hunter out there who's like, man, I really want to shoot something. It was probably pretty frustrating, huh?
2: It wasn't frustrating because I, I'm i probably more trigger happy now than I've ever been. <laughs> Just getting into the idea that you can shoot a lot and game animals here are considered pests. So um, it's actually encouraged in some ways. But yeah, when I was young, because I always grew up with those restrictions, I was never too worried or concerned. I liked being out in the woods and hunting was what motivated me to spend time out there. But um, it was a great hunt. If I saw a raccoon eating things in the tree next to me or, you know, it's all the other wildlife that I saw. And if I saw deer, that was so exciting. It didn't matter if I shot them or not. But having the camera and trying to get photos of them was pretty rewarding, too, because you feel like I was that close and I did the movement to get my camera out. I probably could have gotten a shot at that animal if I had wanted to.
1: Yep. So you, so. you kind of um, you, you're. Early years are kind of like mine where, you know, we, we were primarily sitting in tree stands for whitetails or sitting on the ground, but I yeah. was like, you know, ADHD to the max. Like I, I don't want to sit here for hours and hours and hours. And so sneaking around and still hunting, you know, when I, when I was growing up, still hunting was like a very talked about and you know, it was, it was put into practice by a lot of people. It's really not that popular now, it, at least for yeah. white tails. It's not.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, like I said, my experience hunting whitetails has all been on private land on that lease. But I enjoyed the still hunting aspect so much that I started setting my stands for opportunities for still hunting. So it's kind of similar, actually, to how I hunt the mountain country here in New Zealand. So I'd find an area with good sign around me. So still a chance of being able to shoot something for my, from my stand, but also in areas where I could see other, you know, scrub oaks that were dropping in areas where I could plant a stalk on something that doesn't look like it's going to be feeding by me. And just the terrain of that scrub country is so cool because it's actually possible to do a stalk. You have silent footing and lots of little clumps to go to. And yeah, so that was cool.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, the thing that you know, when you, when you hunt in some of the locations you hunt or, you know, where, where you're working down in New Zealand or you go out West here in the States, you know, it's spotting and stalking and the, you know, it's, it's very so common. Right. And yeah. you just realize like, yeah, you know, if I see a mule deer in the right situation, I can totally creep in on it, but we don't, because of where white tails live and we don't see them bedded as often as some of these other critters, yeah. it's kind of like you forget how stalkable they can be. And if you, yeah. if you can move around and pay attention to the wind and, and stay quiet. They're totally yeah. stockable. It's just not, it's so much right harder country. to find the situation.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's in the, in the right situation and in the right country. Cause as it, the time of the year changes and they're more in the swamps and thicker areas, it's pretty much, I wouldn't say impossible, but I've never shot one in that situation. <laughs> Stocking. I've tried, I've yeah. tried, but I haven't been successful. So
1: yeah, it's just not, it's in it's an opportunity thing that, you know, there's certain situations where, you know, if you're hunting Western river bottoms or something, it's, it could come up, you know, I mean, I've had it, I've, I've, I've killed a few in my life. I killed one really good buck one time stalking him at kind of what you're talking about. I, I was sitting there in early season on a pond and he just walked the other side and then went out to start feeding. And I was like, I can just crawl through this cornfield and catch up to him Mm. and did. And it just worked, but it was like kind of just fell into my lap and it was like, well, you have the, you have the route, you have everything working in your favor. You might as well try it. Yep. But it's, you know, it, it's so often with whitetails, especially now where most people are going to see that and they're not going to do anything or they're going to try to call it in. And, yeah. you know, that might work, that might not, but there are situations where you can just get down and go after those suckers.
2: Well, and there's a lot of situations where you can't too. And i probably, well, there's a lot more failing stories than successful stories, even in that scrub and I learned the hard way a bit about whitetail behavior. I can remember one story that's just really, really clear. It was a beautiful 10 point buck and he was gorgeous. And I think I'd seen him from a distance before and already knew that he could be in that area. Um, And he came by me and just kept on walking and never gave me a shot at like 30 yards. And I was hunting with a compound bow at that time. So it was like just doable range for me, but not. He never gave me an opportunity, he fed under an oak, and then he was out of my range, and he just wouldn't feed closer, wouldn't feed closer, and he continued on, and I was so upset, and I decided I was going to get down and try to intersect him on the other side of that little scrub oak patch, and uh, of course, right when I'm getting down, he comes back because they feed around and comes comes right back where I could have shot him if I had to stay in my stand, but instead... I was moving, and he saw me, and he was gone, and yeah. that was it. So um, that... I was I was really heartbroken over that because you just you put so much time into finding the spot, finding the spot with the animal. You get so obsessed with it, and then you ruin it and you know maybe blow him out of that a old buck like that.
1: Yeah, it um, sucks.
2: He might not be coming back there.
1: But <laughs> so. that's a – I mean, what you bring up is a good point. I, I actually wrote about that this morning for a piece I've got for uh, Meat Eater coming out later where – I realized how often when you're sitting there, you know, you see deer filter through and you're like, okay, they're gone. They're, they headed off to the field or they headed off wherever. And then, you know, 45 minutes later, you look up and see movement and they never left. They, you know, or they, they swung back around and they're just staging in there and just milling around in the cover and they didn't go anywhere. So that's another, I mean, there's an asterisk on our advice earlier, just to get down and run after them. Don't always do that
2: (laughs) because sometimes they didn't go away from you. Yeah. And that, that situation really taught me, um, that there's a good chance that they will come back and, and feed back by and things like that. And, um, most of the time when they feed by me, I don't ever run after them. It's more these stands that I've set up to, to actually cover other areas where they're probably not going to come to my area after that area or, maybe they're going to be feeding down wind of me and then they're definitely not going to come to that area sort of situation where I'll do that a bit longer stock, but
1: um, yeah. I got also, I gotta, Who
2: knows what's going to come by you. If you, if you stay there, there might be something else too. So, well,
1: I mean, right. If you, if you're in a situation where a good buck feeds by you, not spooked, not worried. He's just doing his thing. And his you're in a good area, you yeah. know, yeah. you, you have good things going for you. I have yeah. to ask you, when you you know when you're growing up and you're you're spotting and stalking through those palmettos, sneaking through there, it how much how much fun is it? Because one of the reasons that you see that not happen a lot in the whitetail woods is because the only thing we have to hunt is whitetails. But you've got such yeah. a bonus down there with pigs. When you're, when you're doing that, are you like, I know when I'm around pigs, they're always on the menu. Like I never, if I see them, I'm like laser focused. But when you're, when you were down there growing up, having access to them, was it like, are you sneaking along and you hear pigs or you see them or like, are you immediately going after them? Or are you like, I'm sticking to deer? Nope.
2: I'm sticking to deer. Oh really? Yeah. I was, I was always sticking to deer because we had the opportunity to pig hunt all year around, but we only had X amount of months to, um, because we are on private land. Yeah. And the pigs aren't native we could hunt them anytime. So when I was deer hunting, I was I was pretty hardcore about deer hunting. I was probably way more obsessed with hunting back then than I am now even though that's what I do now for work and everything. But no, it was a big deal to me. Um and like even having pigs under my stand, I would hate it because they would scare away the deer like on the acorns and things, but I wasn't going to waste time shooting them if I felt like it was going to mess up my hunt. So,
1: yeah, they don't play yeah. well together, huh?
2: No, no, yeah, definitely not. Uh, definitely not on the like you know, any mass food product drawing them in. They get a bit, I guess, territorial aggressive over it. So, yeah, they'll chase the deer off. I
1: when I hunted, I hunted Florida one time for tails and there were pigs everywhere. And they were like, yeah, you can shoot them, you know, but like we're, we're here for a deer hunt. So I shot one pig like the first night or something like that. Like Mm -hmm. I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. And then after that, I just had to watch these pigs and I was like, I like it, it kills. I don't get opportunities at pigs, you know? And it just killed me. I'm like, I don't care about these little swamp whitetails. Like I'm sitting here just donating like liters of blood to these mosquitoes. Please just let me shoot these pigs. But we couldn't.
2: Yep. Yep.
1: Well, we could, it was just frowned
2: on. You just go to Florida over the summer and. Yep. Go back to Cocoa Beach, and I'm sure my dad could help you with pigs.
0: Pay attention here, because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options, like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater and use promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear what I like to do on the same grill. You can go from low and slow okay, on smoke boost mode, which gives you great smoke at 180 degrees, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full, great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. This, this, this is my way of bowl stain. If I was going to cook, roast one way, that's how I like to do it, sear roast. Utilize the smoke boost setting to intensify that smoky flavor. Direct flame cooking creates searing, crisping, and browning. Food's going to look as good as it tastes. This grill gets hot in 15 minutes. Cleanup is easy. Cook confidently with intuitive digital controls at the grill and enjoy the sleek, easy-to-use surface. You can also add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert up your game get fired up for your new weber searwood pellet grill
1: part of the reason i want to talk to you about you know the southeast in in general is you know there's so many whitetail hunters down there and it's like it's for some reason being in the hunting industry it's just like a hard region to represent like it's hard to find a lot of voices that come out of there even though it's a super popular you know, it's it, people down there are passionate. And so that that's part of the reason I want to talk to you. Cause like, when I think about going to Florida, I don't think about hunting. I'm like, take me no. fishing.
2: Well, that's it. Like the truth is our whitetail quality compared to the rest of the States is just, they're not as impressive. So unless you're from Florida and you love hunting the Florida swamps and the Florida bush, it's not something that you is a destination at all. Like for turkeys, that's the only, yeah. and I guess gators now, um, but that's the only reason why Florida would be a hunting destination. But if you grow up there and you love hunting the swamps and like, it's, it's, I think it's a tough country to hunt. You have, like you're saying, the mosquitoes and a, like uncomfortable heat. A lot of the times, even in winter, it can get pretty miserably hot and things like that. And yeah. just in the swamp and how thick it is and yeah, all of that. It, it is an
1: inhospitable environment. I mean, it really is. And that's one thing that really opened my eyes. So most of the hunting that we did down, and this was like, this is three days of hunting. So it's, or five days of hunting or whatever. So it was like, just a very small (laughs) glimpse into your world. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, we did, we did tree stand hunts on like natural movement and, you know, like they had some feeders out there in certain places, but it was mostly just like, they had little food plots and like, you know, it's, it's swamp. So there's like little high ground and they go through here or whatever, but yeah. the one day they were just like, you know, if you want to go sneak around, try to find a pig or find a deer, go ahead. And, you know, so I'm, I dropped a pin on camp and I'm out there and I, I'm like, you know, when you, when you're in the mountains, they say you get cliffed out, right? Like you, you get to a spot you're like, I can't go anywhere. I'm going to die if I yeah. keep going. So you got to back out yeah. and you can get into trouble because of, because of the, you know, the up and down terrain, I was sitting there and I'm like, I keep getting swamped out. Like everywhere I go, I'm like, I'm looking and I'm looking at water that has alligators in it. Like I see them sometimes and I'm like, now I don't know where to go and you can't get any elevation. It's so flat that it's like, it reminds me of being in the, in the big North woods where you're just like, I don't really have a good bearing and I can't get up and see anything. It's, it's a really Mm. challenging environment that you probably wouldn't think until you, if somebody dropped you in there, you'd be like, oh yeah, this is tough.
2: This is tough, and and sometimes, like especially on the edge of swamps and things, you get bushed out too. Like it's just actually too thick <laughs> to really get through without making a lot of noise and clearing a trail. Um, yeah, and it takes you way out of the way you'd like to go with the wind or the area that you would like to try to get to, um, because you have to get around this really, really thick briars and vines and everything, so.
1: Yeah, it's tough. And what what surprised me, you know, because it's so wet or, you know, when we were there, you know, you'd get that crazy rain for like an hour in the afternoon every day and it, you know, where it would just downpour. And so you'd be like, okay, I should be able to sneak around and be quiet. But then the sun comes out, it's a million degrees. And then there's hmm. like dried palm fronds and stuff on the ground. And so you're like, like you said, you're caught in the briars and then you're stepping on stuff that's way crunchier than you think it should be and i was just like this is this is legit difficult so you know yeah. you talk about like the quality of deer down there yeah they're little but yep. if you could go down there and consistently sneak around and kill them you could go anywhere <laughs> where the deer were bigger and probably do really well i think
2: yeah that's that's what i think too and like getting into the guiding coming from florida i think learning to hunt that bush and be aware of a lot of other things besides just the, the game sign because you're aware of all the other species that are going to give you away and the terrain. It, it makes you a better hunter anywhere that you go. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of obstacles to solve the, the problem of getting a whitetail in Florida and it kind of makes other obstacles seem not easier, but it just helps you learn to figure them out, I guess.
1: Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Easy doesn't make you good. You know, I no. mean, it just, it does easy. It can be fun, but yeah. challenging makes you good. And it, you know, yeah. you know, you mentioned, you kind of alluded to this earlier and, you know, I, I've bitched about hunting in Florida a lot cause it was, it was wild, but at the same time, you know, you're sitting in a tree stand You know, we were hunting the end of July, right at the opener of the season, wherever we were like central Florida or wherever we were. And I grunted in a buck in, you know, August 1st or whenever it was little guy and I'm looking at like tree frogs and stuff from my stand and, and little lizards. So and I'm cool. like, yeah, this is not something I could have anywhere else. And so, yeah. you know, everything, you know, you think like, oh, the perfect white tail hunt in Iowa on November 7th or whatever. Like there, there are times when it's just all around awesome and very comfortable. But a lot of times the coolest whitetail hunting you're going to have, there's going to be something that kind of sucks about it. And you just, you just take that for what it is because of what you get out of it as far as the overall experience.
2: Yeah. And that's the thing in Florida, like with your tree frogs. And for me, it was, well, snake, I like snakes and frogs, but I also liked otters a lot and raccoons and things as a young person. And I actually used to pick my stands and my spots because my dad would help me like find sign and talk to me about what was had good potential and things but when it came down to it he would let me pick my my own spots that I was going to hunt and help me set up stands there and yeah I used to pick them not on deer sign but on otter sign because I like to see the otters oh I'd like I'd like to see a deer too but I think I'd like to have a little bit less chance of seeing a deer but a better chance of watching the otters and just you know the whole experience being out there so
1: Yeah, well, that's that area that you grew up in. There's so much life in there. I mean, it's just when you're there, there's just there's stuff moving constantly. (laughs) Like there's there's always something going on, and that's you know that we don't talk about that very much. But I'm glad you brought that up because that's sort of the secret sauce of enjoying hunting. Like if you're seeing anything, then it's then it's fun, right? Like and it doesn't have to be Boone and Crockett bucks. Like if if I, I challenge anybody to go out, sit and watch otters do their thing and not be like, man, that was freaking cool.
2: That was so cool. Yeah. And the other thing is like, I, I hear you talk a bit about people looking at their phones and, you know, everything while they're hunting and not paying attention to their surroundings. But if you're watching otters, then you're paying attention to your surroundings and you'll be ready for when that buck sets out, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you be looking it, up it's, and- I, I'm to the point now where I got to shut that sucker down and just put it away because, mm. you know. And it, yep. but it's, it's so worth it. And it it helps me when I'm, you know, like hunting with my little girls, it helps me be aware of that pull to just be like, get yep. on your phone. And, you know, like it's
2: pass the time.
1: Yeah. I mean, and it, yeah. it's an easy crutch, right? Like we, we all do it. it. Like I, I do it a lot, but when I'm with my little girls and like, there's something to glass or something to watch for or something to explain, it just helps me stay in the moment better. And I, I, I didn't see that coming about taking little kids hunting and I just love it.
2: That's so cool. That's so
1: cool. Yeah. So yeah. they're they're not uh, brie level uh, survivalists in the. They're not ready for the Florida <laughs> <laughs> snakes and Definitely stuff like not that.
2: not a not a survivalist, but <laughs>
1: they are. They would they would explode down there in the summer and sitting on a tree stand. But they would love they love the lizards and stuff. Um, you were talking so speaking on that, we were talking. You know. Before we before we start recording here, just, just for like a frame of reference, uh, we went down to Florida in March, met up with your dad, and by we, I mean my family, met up with your dad. He took myself, my little girls, and my wife's uncle out fishing, and we just had a freaking blast with him. It was so fun, and you were talking about growing up with those opportunities, and so not only did you have a dad who took you pig hunting, and he took you deer hunting and out to this hunting club, but you were saying that- when you were like 10, you had a boat that you he trusted you to take out.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So in Florida at that time, at 10, you could get your boater's license or permit or whatever to drive a boat. And I went ahead and I did that as soon as I was 10. And I he felt like because I had the initiative to go ahead and do that, that I should be allowed to take it out. So that was really cool. Before that, I was taking out canoes with my little friends and we would – take turns a lot of times. Yeah. Um, but we were shooting, shooting fish out of the canoes, taking turns paddling for each other. And then that kind of switched to the boat, um, and going to islands and fishing and catching horseshoe crabs. And, you know, there's heaps of opportunities. I didn't have, I ended up getting a crab trap, but I used to just tie meat to a string and put it in and catch crabs with a net, pulling that in. And, you know, do, were you catching crabs really to eat things.
1: or were you just catching them to catch them?
2: Yep. Yeah, no, I would catch them blue crabs to eat. I would only take one claw off and then let them go. So, uh, Why? yeah, <laughs> because I wanted to catch them again. Oh so, it, oh,
1: so you would take one claw off to eat that and then you'd let the rest of them go?
2: Let the rest of them go. Cause I was kind of keeping them, catching them behind my house. So I wanted to keep a population. I felt like that's what was a good thing to do. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you'd catch the same ones again, eh? And then heaps of fishing. I liked bow fishing a lot, but I'd also bike down to the beach and go tarpon, try to get tarpon or snook in the morning before school and, yeah, be and so cast. So
1: I was, w- w- what we were chatting about, and I'm curious your take on this, that it's, I love that Tim gave you that responsibility and trusted you because I feel yeah. like. If you were going to create a a young woman who loves the outdoors, who is going to just all of a sudden end up in freaking New Zealand guiding hunters, that might be the blueprint for it.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it really helped my confidence that I could just go out and do things by myself because I was always allowed to and encouraged to. So um, that really gave me the mindset where, oh, it's not scary to go to a new place. And I'd never hunted out of the state of florida before i started guiding so and then i've been in new zealand and guided in wyoming had never hunted elk before but was it <laughs> was guiding there so um and had a bit of an experience in canada and i got my visa sorted. so as soon as the borders open here i can go to bc and guide so that'll be good
1: that, that that's incredible um, let, mm. I want I want to ask you about the the New Zealand stuff, but I want to back up one second. Um, I I don't know if you ever pay attention to any of these hunting forums or anything like that, but I, I check into them sometimes. And there's one called Rock Slide. that's like a it's okay. like a Western primarily a Western hunting forum. And there was a thread recently on there about somebody was bitching about like YouTube hunters or YouTube stars or something. Um, giving away too many secrets and explaining the, like the draw yeah. process or the over-the-counter units or yeah. you know, how to make a drop camp happen or whatever, get like, like please stop giving people easy information. And, you know, some people, you know, predictable, mm. predictably kind of sided with them. And some people were like, you know, not everybody grew up with a dad that taught them how to do that. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's not a bad thing that people have the right, they have good information out there. And yeah. it just, you know, I, I kind of feel like that. Like I feel very lucky how I grew up and you know, I was, my dad took me hunting constantly and fishing constantly. Like I had a very, very good start to become what I am today. And then I hear yeah. your story and I know your dad and I'm like, man, yeah. it, it's such an advantage to have that it growing up.
2: It really, really is. And it really makes me upset. We get a lot of it in New Zealand, um, very secretive and, clicky in a way, not welcoming to new hunters or people from different areas, hunting different areas. And I just think that that really sucks because we're such a minority as it is. There's no reason to um, be more divided. And yeah, maybe it's a shame when you want to go someplace and there's a bunch of other people there and you've walked seven hours in New Zealand. I'm thinking you've walked seven hours to get in and then someone's there. But when it comes down to things, isn't it awesome that we have the the privilege to go hunting and, um, it's great if more people could get into it, even though it makes the woods a bit more crowded because it's going to ensure that, you know, I don't have kids and I'm not about to have kids, but one day I'd like to have kids and I want them to have the opportunity. So if, if we become such a secretive minority, it's going to get taken away and or at least made more difficult. So yeah, um,
1: it, without question. And it, you know, it's just the reality of what's going on, right? Like we have mm-hmm. we have. If you look at the population of humans, it's it's growing exponentially, and there's more people out there, and they're taking up more space. And you know, if you look at the average size of a like the square footage of a house. Here in the US now versus 50 years ago, it's like a thousand square feet bigger or something like, I mean, it, we're taking up more space. And so yeah. the people left who want to go hunt have only so many options. And so, yeah, yeah. you're going to bump into more people and that sucks, but we got to keep people out there. Like I, I firmly yeah. believe that we have to keep people out there and like, you can't get mad if, you know, like I look at how much information we have available for everything, you know, like I can't, Mm -hmm. I can't do anything manly, but hunt and fish. Like I'm, if you asked me to work on a car or something, I'd be like, I can't even, I don't know what that is. Like I, like, (laughs) I think I've got a truck that's two years old. I think I've looked at the engine like twice, you know, like that's not my jam, but there's so, you know, I can go on YouTube and find answers to questions like, you know, electrical work or stuff like that, that I can do myself. I'm like, this is kind of awesome. Like that that we have the opportunity to get information this way. And the same goes for hunting. Like, yeah, I know it sucks that everybody's, everybody's going to Colorado to hunt elk or everybody wants to get that Iowa whitetail tag now. And they can figure out very easily how to go through the process of getting into the game and playing the game. But At the same time, like, man, if it keeps people around and gets that fire burning and they want to be passionate end users who love this stuff, like, I want to open the door.
2: Well, and the other cool thing is it's really an opportunity to help educate people to become more considerate hunters. And uh, it's those platforms to share information and share good information is also a platform to share um, how we'd like to see the future of hunting going and get filled people's mindsets to, uh, think more about conservation and, and management of the areas and also consideration for other hunters. So,
1: yeah, well, that's, you know, that's one of the big arguments, right? Is, you know, you can, you can give people all the information to go on their first elk hunt or the first traveling whitetail hunt, but you're not going to give them any, you know, any of the ethics you think they should have, or they're not going to just know some of these unwritten rules that you and I follow. Cause we've, were raised in this. And yeah. I look at that and I go, yeah, a lot of people are out there and they do things that other people think are stupid. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's where like the touch points between us and other hunters, like in person – or on plat- mm-hmm. platforms like this, I think that's where this stuff matters, you know, because there, yeah. there are people that just, there's some people who are assholes, right? They're going to just do what they want. But a lot of people yeah. just don't know. Like, they don't know that you don't park right in front of the trailhead and walk out like they're, you know, I mean, if you want to, if you want to see people do stupid stuff that just aren't thinking about other people, go to any random public boat access on July 4th yeah. weekend.
2: <laughs> you know that's what I mean? hey okay, like, yep.
1: You will see infuriating behavior and some of it is these people are clueless and some of it is they just don't know any better. Like maybe they got their first boat and they've never done this before. And so it's like kind of up to us to just be like we got to police our own a little bit and just kind of usher them in the right direction or what we hope is the right direction.
2: Yeah. And maybe maybe I'm a little bit naive, but I think most people just don't know. Like if they knew, they would want to be a bit more considerate about things. So – yeah at least that's what I choose to believe. So
1: I I think you're right. And I, I Mm -hmm. I really think, you know, it's so easy. It's so easy to go into hunting, you know, whether, whether it's whitetail or whatever, and expect something bad to happen. You know, like this is what happens on public land a lot is people go out and they're just thinking, well, you know, somebody's going to ruin my hunt or it's not going to be any good because there's been a bunch of idiots out here. And so they don't hunt the way they should. And it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Or if, you know, you pull up there and there are two or three other trucks in the parking area, it's, you get into a bad headspace and you're not going to hunt the way you need to. It doesn't do you any good. Like it, you know, and those, I I just, this is so random, but I've, I've had a dog training buddy who I had on my other podcast and he was awesome, but he was a hothead. (laughs) He, he has a, he has a cabin (laughs) on a lake up by where we're at. And uh-huh. he passed away last year, right before duck season. And when I got the text, I texted you know the person back, and I was like, was it a was it a heart attack? And she said, yeah. And I was uh, like, yeah, because he was running so hot and so angry over so much little stuff that you know. And it, I'm not a doctor, right? There's probably a million reasons yeah. why he had a heart attack. But when you see that, it's like it, it really wasn't worth it to live that way. And he wasn't that old. No. And so I see yeah. some of these people get so worked up over this. I'm like, like you said, hunting is a freaking gift. Like it's yeah. we could lose this shit at any moment and the you know, the opportunity to live a life like you're living and the opportunity to live a life like I'm living or just have it be your escape, that's there's only so many generations left and that's gonna be gone. Like we should really yep. learn to appreciate it.
2: Exactly. No, I can't couldn't agree more with that. And I see probably cause I grew up more on the uh private land side of things, I do like most of my hunting here so is on public land but i see it a lot with fishing so growing up in florida on fishing spots you get people they're so set coming in and it's just really not worth it
1: <laughs> well so. i know and it's it's weird right cuz it's not like there aren't lots of places to fish <laughs> yeah. and, you yeah. know but down there and people get very territorial and i get it but It's just, it's the same thing again. Like, you know, we we were talking about before this podcast that everybody has a freaking boat now and everybody has the ability to go out and buy like a decent Garmin unit or something. They can find, I mean, you can get a $5 app on your phone and find every, every structure underneath the water on any lake you want. I mean, it's the information's out there. So you got to go, okay, well, am I going to, am I going to do something different? Am I going to get up earlier? Am I going to fish a little different strategy, a little tap, like change my tactics? What are you going to do? to just make up for the fact that everybody has the same information. There's more people out there.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Instead of just getting just redlining and riled
2: up about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah,
1: Screaming, shaking your fist at the sky. Uh, yeah. What's, what's, what's it like down in New Zealand right now? Or is what's, what's the coronavirus situation down there?
2: Oh, we don't have COVID here, but we also don't have very many vaccines. So just some of the older folks are able to get vaccines now. So but
1: I mean sorry I mean like what, what's the the tourist situation? Can you with, get in or not?
2: No. No. So the borders were open with Australia, but um I think they're closed now. At least from Sydney they're closed. And yeah. Um so that- we're just we just have kiwi clients, which is really good. I think uh myself and my boss are the only two hunting guides that I know of that are still able to be full time. So that's pretty good.
1: So you just um, have, you have local local hunters hunting what tar and red stag or what yeah. what are they hunting?
2: We're mainly doing tar just because that seems to be a bit more of the market. We have a really cool opportunity that we lease a private station with lots of public land tops, and it's up in really cool country. But having the farm access up the river bed makes it more accessible. Um, so it actually comes out to be about the same price as flying if you want to do it with a group flying in and flying food and beverages in for for the time to go hunt other public land tops in this way you don't have to pay the the chopper fee in and we have a really awesome hut you know no electricity um but really really comfortable because it's insulated with a fire so that just makes all the difference for winter hunting because it's it's winter now so the rut's Just about for tar is just about over, but they're still kind of high up this time of year, so it's pretty fun.
0: Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit, you match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits not a first aid kit, all right? Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at UrgentCareKit.com slash eater and use promo code eater. That's promo code eater at UrgentCareKit.com slash eater. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear what I like to do on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, which gives you great smoke at 180 degrees, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full, great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. This, this, this is my way of bull saying If I was going to cook, roast one way, that's how I like to do it, sear roast. Utilize the smoke boost setting to intensify that smoky flavor. Direct flame cooking creates searing, crisping, and browning. Food's going to look as good as it tastes. This grill gets hot in 15 minutes. Cleanup is easy. Cook confidently with intuitive digital controls at the grill and enjoy the sleek, easy-to-use surface. You can also add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert to up your game. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. Before, before everything
1: got shut down, what, what was your client base like? Where, where were they coming from?
2: Mainly Americans, and then Germans would be the second biggest. Uh, Europeans, but mainly Germans. So,
1: they, are, were they mostly rifle hunters?
2: Yes. Yeah. So my boss that I work for, for the tar, doesn't take bow hunters. Oh, he doesn't? <laughs> he doesn't like bow No. No. <laughs> and I don't blame him. Um, I, I don't blame him at all, especially for how he works. Because um, I did have a client last week that killed a tar with, with one shot with the 300. But that was this whole year. Three shots has been the fewest shots to finish a tar. Um, just because they're so tough, they've got this big mane too. And I think that that really takes away a lot of the speed before it even gets to their, their thick shield. It's almost like a pig, um, their skin and they're just such hardy animals. So, um, mm,
1: interesting. And really,
2: really big open country. So I took my bow up. I had in between hunts. I went, further up the Valley to some of the public land. And I was going to try to shoot a tar and I chickened out because of my clients the week before having so much trouble with a gun. And I was finishing everything with the knife. And I just was like, I'm not, not comfortable to fling an arrow at this animal, um, right now. So I'm going
1: well, to, but ended people up do not it. even
2: taking the bow out. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, they do. They pe- do a lot with compound bows. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's definitely doable with a trad bow. And um, I think my dad will give it a try. But I just, I guess I had a bad enough week guiding with having trouble killing animals, but I wasn't in the right frame of mind to take my yeah. bow out for him. So,
1: well, that's it's so interesting to hear you say that because there's like whether we, you know, whether we want to or not, we internalize things. And so when you're, when you're exposed to that and you're guiding rifle hunters and you see that a certain animal soak up a lot of firepower, a lot of lead, it's in your heart, you're like, I think I can get one of these with a bow, but you know, like what they're capable of. And so you kind of internalize that and go, I don't know if this is, you know, you call yourself off of that. That's interesting.
2: Yeah. And the other thing is this time of year over the winter. Um, I mentioned that they're a bit higher. So a lot of times the old bulls will live down in lower scrub and it's really doable for archery hunters. But this time of year, when they're rutting, they go up to much steeper country where big family mobs of nannies live. Um, and they're a bit more in the open, but still it's steep enough. You can, you know, bow hunting is still doable. It's more challenging, but the the worst part is recovery is such a real factor where you shoot an animal for recovering it. And if you shoot them with a bow and they go, you know, a hundred yards or 200 yards, well, are you going to be able to get to them? You have no idea where they're going to go. So you're talking
1: super high ve- elevation, steep stuff, right?
2: Really steep, yeah. really, really steep. And, you know, ice this time of year and snow and Yeah. There's just a lot of places that you can't get to. So yeah, I had a tar the other week that we shot and it, it slid down and it hooked by its horns. Um, and we had to tie it up to shoulder cape it and skin it. And then we untied it and gave it one push and it just free fell. We couldn't see it. And then we heard it hit something and then free fall a bunch more and hit something. So like that's the sort of country that we're in. Um, and Yeah. It, it makes you think before you bring a bow out, that's for sure.
1: Yeah. That's... And it,
2: it's definitely doable other times of the year um, after the rut by September, uh, especially the old bulls are back down really low in thick, bushy scrub, and you just never really see them. But if you, you found a good area and spent a lot of time there, you'd probably get an opportunity. Yeah. So,
1: does it do you run into any, any issues, maybe issues is the wrong word here, but you, you hunt with a very interesting setup and you're guiding rifle hunters. Are you ever just like, Hey, come on guys. Why don't you hunt with a real weapon? Or you just keep your mouth shut and take your tips and just let it (laughs) go.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I definitely keep my mouth shut and definitely take my tips. That sounds bad, but 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 um, in your head,
1: are you like, come on guys, quit being such pansies and hunt with a real weapon.
2: No, because it's such a challenge in its own way. And everybody has their different, um, what's a challenge for them and what they enjoy doing. And I, um, have been doing because I've been guiding so many of these and it's a real social hunt. These tops hunts, I call like adventure hunting versus, I think the bush stalking and the still hunting with a bow is a lot. Well, obviously it's not something you can do with two people really. I don't think. And, it's yeah, you're very in the moment versus on these big walks. You're spending a lot of time just covering ground where you're not really worried about your movement and things and you can talk and, um, it's more the challenges of the terrain and the country. So if that's what people are after, it's an awesome challenge in itself. It's yep. just a different sort of hunting. It's kind of like, you know, I don't know if I said this on the other podcast, cause I tell quite a few people this. Hunting is like saying that you play a sport with a ball, you know, are you playing pool or are you playing football? Like, yeah, it's, it's pretty different. So
1: a lot of different ways to go about it. Let, let's talk about your bow choice.
2: Okay. Well, I have it here. It's not strung, <laughs> So it's, um, made with more like it has fiberglass and, uh, modern day materials, but it's, a turkish uh hornbow style so which a west what? asian recurve <laughs> it's a west asian recurve a mounted archery bow so this is new since the last one this one's i think 62 pounds um so it's a bit i uh had another one made that was another 10 pounds stronger just for new zealand game
1: and so. it, you say it's it's a west west asian or western asian what did you say it was
2: Yep. I, a West Asian recurve kind of is the model of it. Good girl. And
1: and it's a mounted bow. And you keep saying that now our listeners don't know what that means.
2: Yes. Okay. So I used to do a sport called mounted archery. So it's where you're running on a horse, shooting targets, um, pretty close, uh, 10, 15 yards away. And you hold a bunch of arrows in your hand and you shoot quickly because you're moving by a target. And I just love that that point and shoot style. And it feels so natural. And it's something that you don't have to think about. You don't have to think about the animals movement as much getting a still shot with them. You don't have to think about your movement. I think I mentioned on another podcast with you, um, I shot a Turkey that was, uh, I was moving and it was moving. So, um, that was cool. It's just, your mind takes in all of that and you don't have to think about it when you shoot.
1: Yeah, this is like
2: like shotgunning for birds, right? Yeah. It's, There's a lot it's of something instinct Something that you just do it on. enough. Yeah, yeah, it's
1: true instinctive shooting. And it mm-hmm. so this this mounted recurve that you're talking about, what what does it measure tip to tip first? I know you you're showing it to me but the people can't know, see it. I know. I'm
2: just trying to <laughs> trying to think would that be like 3 3 feet? This yeah, is it's pretty it's short. Unstrung. Yeah. So not it wouldn't be as long as it would be about from my tip of my fingers to my tr- about my draw length. I'd say.
1: Yeah, really short.
2: Similar. Yeah.
1: And and designed, you know, the history of those bows is shooting them from horseback, and you know, you said that yep. you did this as a, you know, as as a sport, but it's really, really a unique choice to hunt with. There's <laughs> yeah. probably what you and about seven other people who hunt with these.
2: Yep. And it's, it's really got its challenges. I think the biggest one that I'm finding is um, my distance. I'm just not comfortable taking longer shots. And I think a lot of that is also my um, desire to really make an ethical shot. And coupled with that I'm shooting a really heavy broadhead with a stiff arrow, much stiffer than you would for my poundage of, of bow because of that heavy broadhead. How, how heavy of
1: a head are you shooting?
2: It's 225 green because it's 100 with a hundred with 125 steel insert. Yep. So, um, and so you have no problems with front loses. of center.
1: You get, you got <laughs> plenty of weight up there.
2: Yep. Yep, exactly. So, but it just loses speed really quickly. So, and just because it's such a short bow, and I'm not shooting with a mechanical release. I use a thumb instead of three fingers because it's only one point of contact, but it's still uh, little differences and it's a really light bow. So that stability problem too, like my problem shooting. Cause I record myself when I'm shooting and I look at it and it's all from my left hand holding the bow too tightly, pretty much all my problems um, when I'm practicing at home come from that. And so what I'm saying is that little differences have a lot bigger impact because it's light and because it's short. Mm-hmm. So, so you
1: you have issues because you, you don't hold this, you know, when we, when we talk about compound shooting, we talk about, you know, grip, what you're talking about in introducing some torque in there, you know, by, by gripping it too tightly, but also, you know, we've got bubble levels and we've got multiple, you know, we anchor point, we've got, we've got different points of reference to show us we're holding this thing the same exact way every time, but you're not doing that with these bows, right? Like there's no, No. it's not consistent that way, right?
2: No. And I'm probably getting a bit more consistent because I haven't been practicing from a horse. I've been practicing a lot of stationary stuff for hunting and I've been practicing um, actually holding my draw just getting prepared for different shots that I might need to take a bit more but it's still it's still not stationary against myself it's still a floating rest so but I am trying to be more consistent with that floating rest and um, the biggest thing that I do that helps me is to do that little bit of a what we talked about with the male arrow the um, positive pull through and push through and that little bit of movement for me at the shot, helps to keep uh, my release more consistent and crisper. So those are some of the things I've been working
0: with.
1: (laughs) So you, you said, you know, compounds way too easy. Rifles, obviously way too easy. Traditional, you know, normal, traditional archery, way too easy. You're going to shoot a bow that is designed to be shot off horseback, but you're going to shoot it in, in, in all of your different sneaking around hunting down in New Zealand and everywhere else. What's, what's your range with that sucker?
2: Yeah. Right now I'm limiting myself to 10 yards.
1: Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, it, and that's, so
2: I might be pushed out to 15 yards and I have shot things at 15 yards and even over 20 yards with the old bow. But, um, it's just what I've decided to tell myself now, um, is I'd like to try to get 10 yards from the animal.
1: And you're and
2: we're 15 yards.
1: <laughs> what, what did you call it? Bush creeping. What was the word you, you said? Before? Bush
2: Stalking is what bush they stalking. say in New Zealand. still hunting pretty much. <laughs> yep. So
1: you're bush stalking uh, a variety. Of, you know, that's the cool thing about New Zealand. There's a variety of animals to hunt down there and yeah. you're trying to get within 10 yards of them to shoot them with this bow. Yep.
2: That's, that's cool. That's Just a, they're big animals and it's a little bow and I want to make sure I take the best shot that I can. Yeah. So yeah.
1: Yeah. It's 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 really cool. I mean and I I wanna ask you, I I know this this has come up a lot in other places and I I know Rogan's pushing this book, but I just finished this this book, Empire of the Summer Moon, about the Comanches. And you know, really their their whole thing, you know, when they really took off was they figured out how to shoot from a horseback. And they figured out how to shoot rapid fire and shoot yeah. from a position where they were shooting under the horse's neck at full speed with a, with a fistful wow. of arrows, you know, kind of like yeah. semi-auto style or, and I, I don't know this. I should have looked this up beforehand, but I have to assume their bows were probably, they probably were built similarly to what you're shooting. Do you, do you know?
2: I do not know. I, I believe that they're a bit longer. Um, just. I I think that in North America, we shot longer bows versus this. Asian styles a bit a bit shorter and that would help with distance and um stability and everything as well for them so i'd have to look up what they were shooting to to know for sure yeah, i even know the japanese mounted archers shoot really really long bows so um there's there's quite a few different designs that were made to be shot off horses but well why did this why is, did
1: your the design of the bows you shoot why did they get so short then
2: Um, I'm not sure why, to be honest, I think that just, they're a lot easier to handle on a horse. So the Mongolians and, um, everything did everything from horseback. So they probably wanted something that was just easy on the horse.
1: Huh? It's, it's interesting. Anybody who's listening to this, who's like, I have no idea what the hell they're talking about. You just got to look them up. Just, yeah. just just, yeah. go to YouTube, look them up. Cause it's, it's, it, it doesn't look like the kind of thing that you could possibly shoot well. And yet people do.
2: Yeah. Yeah. People shoot them am- amazingly well. And when I was shooting a lot, practicing, uh, my dad and I play archery golf when I'm home. So what we do is we tie a bottle cap hanging from like a bush. So it's like, a bottle cap by a piece of floss in the wind. It's kind of a hard target to shoot. And, you know, you can get consistently where you're hitting something like that with these bows, um, which is pretty cool. So
1: how often do you target practice? I mean, how often do you shoot?
2: When, when I am really seriously hunting with it, I probably am shooting, try to shoot like three times a day. Like when I was in school, I'd shoot in the morning before classes you know, after class, again, before bed, at least three, like sessions of shooting. And right now it's, I'm pretty bad about it because I've been, well, I just got back yesterday from a hunt. So I've been in the bush, um, working and guiding and it's not something like, even if I did have a second where I wasn't doing a chore or doing a job or trying to head skin things or get things ready, um, I kind of have to be social. Like I can't just go off by myself and practice shooting. So, um, I haven't been practicing as much lately.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you got to work.
2: <laughs> yep. Yeah. yeah. You got to
1: work. I mean, yeah. yeah. Uh, and we're,
2: we're opposite seasons to y'all. So this is our busy season was from March until, and it's still going, getting a bit of a lull, but so,
1: so how, how come you haven't hunted the whitetails down there in New Zealand yet?
2: Yeah. Good question. And just laziness on my part. So the hunting, the whitetails isn't the really big draw to me because there's so many cool species here that I haven't shot or hunted and that I would love to hunt with a bow. Um, and probably it's much more accessible areas for where I live because there's only two populations of whitetail in New Zealand. And the one that I would really like to hunt on Stewart Island, uh, requires a boat to get there and you have to book the blocks about a year ahead of time so it's a bit of planning and a lot of my work is pretty last minute right now with kiwis so i have to keep a pretty open schedule so but i do i need to go down there and do it because not not for shooting the whitetail but the experience like i'm one of those people i'm kind of bad at just going in sightseeing i'm not a hiker i love hiking with a, a weapon or even a camera in my hand but I, I like having the purpose. So Whitetail would give me the purpose to get down into a really, really spectacular part of New Zealand and a place that I'd like to see and spend time in, um, whether or not I shoot anything. But, yeah. Have you, so you it's, haven't it's been down the there
1: where the Whitetails I live? I have
2: Nope. No. And how did
1: how did the Whitetails get there?
2: So you know? Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah. Um, Theodore Roosevelt actually gifted them to New Zealand so that's pretty cool in the early um, 19, 1904 or five and he gave 22 that were trapped in snow in Missouri I think um, put them on a boat and 18 of them made it which is pretty cool because that's before the Panama Canal so they had to go along and um, well, they took the a ride. To, yeah. They took a real ride and they came into the South part of New Zealand and nine of them. Um, so two bucks and the rest 14. Yeah. Seven does two bucks on Stewart Island and two bucks and seven does on, um, Lake. What a, what a something <laughs> anyway, where the other herd is up, up towards actually where I live. Um, but that herds a little bit less accessible because a lot of it's on private land and the public land is super, super bluffy. And while there are white tails still there, it's um, not as ideal as the private land around it for them to live. So there's more that are on those private blocks.
1: So those all, all of the white tails down there in New Zealand are descendants from that, the gift from Teddy.
2: Yep. Yep. And Uh, I haven't hunted them, but I've heard from people that you can really see like similar traits on the left side. They don't have, or fort, I can't remember, but you can see some like huge similarities in the racks because they all came from those nine deer that were in that area. And, and the populations have taken off. Um, they're huge, especially, Done in Stewart Island, the hunting pressure from recreational hunters doesn't really seem to be enough to keep the population in check um, because there's no, you know, native predators or anything. So they do quite a bit with professional callers, and um, it's not the target of the 1080 drops, but they do do um, aerial 1080, which is a poison drops for possums and predators. Because Stewart Island's an island. It's pretty pristine. They have an awesome kiwi bird population. So that you can even see kiwis out in the day, which is a big thing for New Zealand. They're really um, threatened. So, so
1: hold they on do a, a second. lot to protect it. Let, let's pretend like you're talking to some idiot from Minnesota who has no idea what you're talking about. So you have an island down there that has a population of whitetails on it, but also has uh, invasive possums, right? Yep. And they're exactly. dropping poison on the possums, and that's killing some of the deer.
2: Yep. Yeah, so the deer will eat the 1080 as well. So it's something that they're not really worried about because they're they're paying people to call them to shoot them as well um, to keep the population in check. Because it's a pretty pristine environment. It's really uh, for as big as the island is. It's barely untouched by humans and they've got some really awesome plant species and bird species that don't exist anyplace else. So they do actually the whitetail population in New Zealand is probably studied more than any of the other deer. I don't want to say that for sure, but it's really well studied because they want to determine their effect on the native vegetation as, as they're browsing and things. So they have a number that they've determined is like acceptable to be there. And they use other means, um, commercial shooting, professional shooting, to help keep that number um, where they want it, just without predators. It's completely different. Deer, Deer are pest here. So there's like, if you look up online, you can read a lot about how to effectively hunt, because it's all how to effectively manage pest species, but it will tell you. Heaps of information about what they're eating and where they are, what times of year, and and, and on like that, that island
1: down there, there's public land there.
2: Yeah, so it's all public land. Um, it's just you have to book your block, and it's like booked out a year ahead of time. It's a pretty popular thing for Kiwis to go down and do, or Kiwi, not the birds, the people, <laughs> the New Zealanders. So um, they love it. It's really like sportsmen's, well, New Zealand. All New Zealand's kind of like a sportsman's paradise. But the diving is just exceptional. The fishing's just exceptional. And then you have the opportunity to hunt a species that you can't hunt other places in New Zealand. So it's a pretty big draw. Does, and
1: does anybody ever go and bow hunt them? Or is it mostly rifle?
2: Yep. No, no. Quite a quite a few. The compound bow um, is becoming a much bigger thing here in New Zealand than it was. And it's, it's ideal country for bow hunting anyway, because it's a lot of bush. Um, most of the deer are shot within like 100 meters of the coast. So a lot of deer are shot. Probably most of the deer would actually be shot on the beach because they come out and they eat the seaweed on the shore, the white deer there. So oh yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: how big do they get down there? Do you um, know?
2: They're pretty small. I think similar size to Florida. So like maybe 120 for a buck and 80 pounds for a doe. Sort of. Yeah, pretty little. Yeah, pretty small. And same thing with the racks. Like anything that scored over 100 would just be a gollywomper, a monster.
1: (laughs) Is that that a New Zealand
2: word? No, we had one client like three years ago where I work that – he's from the States and he called things gollywompers And my boss and I just keep on using it as a joke, so – it's become one of those things that you use enough as a joke, and now you actually say it. So
1: I, I love that. So when are you going to get down there and hunt those deer on the island? Then
2: good question. Well, um, depends how long the border stay closed. Because I'd like to, I would have liked to have gone to Canada for this season, but um, a bit of a tricky situation travel wise. Uh, I won't have very much work at all over the spring and the summer, so that might be a good opportunity, even though things will be cast then, but just to do some hunting for a doe with my bow myself, that would be pretty cool. And no, having no seasons here makes it so accessible. Um I have enough friends that maybe somebody will have a, bo- a block booked and I could go on a trip with someone. If not, I'll have to plan a bit in advance to get a block.
1: So the hunting down there, there's public land, but you got to reserve your spot. And is it, you it's, it's big country. Is there, are you doing like kind of a, uh, you know, back country, bivy type hunting camping out there? How, how are you like logistically? How do you go about it?
2: Okay. So there's a bunch of different ways and I have hunted a bunch of different ways. So for the Stewart Island, for the whitetail, you book your block and they have huts. They have a hut there. Um, you can bring a tent as well. Cause I'm not sure how many bunks are in the hut and Normally you would come in with your friends. It's like a fairly big party and then you all go to different sections. Uh, so you're not hunting over each other. Um, and, you know, the in reaches, but even on your phone, you can get maps. So you can know the boundaries of where you're hunting without intruding on other parties and things. So that's really important to make sure that you know where you can hunt and where where you're intruding on somebody else. Um but like I said, the coastline is where a lot of it's happening there. So, But it's really comfortable because the weather gets pretty bad. You're off an island off the south tip of the, the South Island. So you're getting, you're, it's not Arctic, but you're getting towards there. So it can be pretty bad weather sometimes. Um, and the whitetail don't like the the wind and the nasty weather at all. So, um,
1: When, when do some, they rot down there, do you know?
2: Yeah, uh, I do know. So they'll start the end of April, but through May, all the way till the end of May, June. Yeah, man, it's different time of year.
1: Any, any way you can get the the government down there to open up those borders so we can come down and
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hunt, hunt love, some love rut crazed craze bucks next a, year? They need to pass out the vaccines before I think they're gonna let the borders open. Just but. We'll see. We'll see. We're hoping, I mean, our industry, my work really relies heavily on the borders opening. So it would be great if they could, but
1: yeah, this is a, this is a bad situation for a lot of outfitters. I mean, you know, the big question here is, is Canada going to open, Canada going to open, you know, and it, they rely so heavily on American sportsmen there. And, you know, in some places from Europe too. And, you know, when you, when you get your business shut down for two full seasons, it's,
2: like that's tough to weather. Yeah. I yeah. I was talking to who I was going to be working for in Canada about potentially coming over and he has some Canadian clients, but, um, yeah, it's almost not worth running the camp for what he can charge the Canadians versus the international is
1: yeah, a lot it, better. It's, it's a rough deal. Uh, breathe. This has been so much fun. Um, where, what, what's the outfitter you work for in case people who are listening to this can ever actually get down there and go hunting in yeah, case you ever so, let us in.
2: So I work for two places where you can bow hunt. That's where I actually live. And I'm right now where I rent a house and that's Glenn Dean hunting and fishing, um, in New Zealand. And then where I've been doing the tar is for Southern mountain adventures and he doesn't like bow hunters, but if you want to go for an epic mountain experience, he's great. So Beautiful country.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it.
2: Sweet. Thanks, Tony. Great talk. Catching up.
1: That's it for this week, folks. Make sure to tune in every week for more whitetail goodness. I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson, and this has been the Wired to Hunt podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. If you still have a whitetail itch that needs some scratching... Head on over to our Wired to Hunt YouTube channel to check out our how-to videos, or go to Meat Eater's YouTube channel to watch our One Week in November series. And if that's not enough, go to themeatEater.com/wired, and you can see a bunch of articles from Mark, myself, and a whole bunch of our uh, valued contributors writing on all kinds of different topics related
0: to whitetails. it's got a full great sear zone so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart & Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.